0: morning. Questions about tax collectors and fasting is what I've entitled the message. And uh, let's ask the Lord to guide us in our study. Father, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Help me to make the text clear and make the proper applications uh, for the building up of your people. And Lord, if there's anyone listening in that is not yet a believer, I pray that you would work in their hearts to bring them to a true saving faith. And so, Lord, we commit our time to you now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. An overview of Matthew here, and uh, the theme is Christ the King. We are in chapters 8 through 10, uh, the power or authority of the King, proving his prophetical right to the throne by fulfilling prophecy. A dominant theme in Matthew 8 and 9 is the Lordship authority of Christ. Last time in chapter 9, 1 through 8, we saw Christ has the authority to forgive sins, which ultimately is the prerogative of God alone. We're not talking about just forgiving one another as we are to do, but in terms of God forgiving people. Jesus claimed to forgive the paralytic, and then he proved it by immediately healing him. Now, the people were in awe of this miracle. And verse 8 says, quote, "...they glorified God who had given such power to men." But in doing so, they missed the point. This miracle demonstrated that Jesus was, in fact, the Messianic God-man who had authority to forgive sins. He was no mere man that God had given this power to, but rather God himself come in the flesh doing what only God can do. Well, we pick up our text today in Matthew 9, verse 9. It says there, as Jesus passed on from there, that is from forgiving and healing the paralytic, as he passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, having demonstrated his authority to forgive sins, Jesus then proceeded to call to himself a tax collector by the name of Matthew, who would have been considered by the Jews in the worst category of sinners. So we're still dealing with that subject of forgiving sinners. And Matthew thus becomes an example of Christ's forgiving and life-changing power. Now the other synoptic, and by synoptic I mean similar gospels, you understand that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar and yet distinct. But very similar in content, while John is 92% unique to John. So when I talk about the Synoptic Gospels, I'm talking about the similar Gospels. And uh, those Synoptic Gospels of uh, Mark and Luke refer to Matthew as Levi. They don't call him Matthew, they refer to him as Levi. Now, many commentators think that Matthew may have been sort of a nickname that was given to him by Jesus, it literally means gift of God. And if so, Matthew, in effect, was his Christian name. And the name which Matthew himself, as as now the human author of this book, ascribed to himself, as seen right here. Well, Matthew shows Christian humility here in that he acknowledges his past. He doesn't try to cover it up. Uh, He acknowledges it. And he doesn't give undue emphasis on terms of his personal story, although he does touch on it here, uh, which is very thematically fitting at this point. You see, Matthew inserts this right after Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins and right before Christ dines with tax collectors and sinners who are very much in need of forgiveness. And of which Matthew had been one, right? I mean, he was a tax collector. So Matthew himself is an example of a forgiven sinner whose life is changed by Christ to where he is greatly used by God. He's an example of a changed life that true repentance brings about. Now, we don't know if there was any previous interaction with Jesus on the part of Matthew uh, prior to his conversion, prior to Jesus showing up at the tax office and saying, follow me, Uh, we don't know. Uh, Perhaps there was some background interaction, but we don't know about it. We do know that Matthew was busy at work collecting taxes. And you know tax collectors are always busy, right? They're always busy. There's always more taxes to collect. But suddenly into that context came Jesus. His day was about to be interrupted in a big way. His life was about to be interrupted in a big way. Here comes Jesus, and what does he say? Very short little message, right? Follow me. And immediately Matthew arose and followed him, showing that indeed he recognized Christ's lordship authority in his life. Uh, Following Christ is a lordship issue. Uh, We follow him because he's the master. We follow him because he's in charge. Now, following denotes a complete break with his former life. You understand, Matthew, that day, gave up being a tax collector. He went from being a tax collector to a follower of Christ, and just like that, everything changed. He never went back. His life was forever changed. He heard the voice of Christ arose and followed him. That's in keeping with what Jesus says when he says, my sheep hear my voice. They hear, they respond, and I know them and they follow me. This is the fruit of truly hearing the voice of Christ. Now you have to understand this following of Christ was no small thing. Uh, It wasn't like he locked up the shop for an hour or two and went back after a long break to collect more taxes. This was it. He was done as a tax collector. And that's really saying something because, you know, he had a very lucrative job here. Tax collectors were wealthy people. They collected money. And uh, they tended to be uh, fellow Jews. You see, the Romans hired Jews to collect taxes from the Jews. And Matthew is one of those Jews collecting taxes from Jews. And the Jews hated him for it. You see, they were considered traitors. Traitors to Rome. You're working for Rome. You're a traitor. And tax collectors tended to be corrupt, (coughs) overcharging on taxes and keeping the excess. That's how they got their riches. Now, because of their characteristic corruption and extortion, the Jews considered fellow Jewish tax collectors, what you might say, the scum of the earth. And don't you love this about Jesus? He chooses people like that. People like me, people like Matthew, dare I say it, people like you. He often chooses those that religious pride would never choose. You're not good enough for the group. I, I love this about God. I love everything about God because God is God. And, and, you know, that's the way it is. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren. He's pointing out their calling. What, what's, a, what's the nature of this? Not, not many wise according to the flesh, not many no- mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Chosen the weak things of the world to shame those things that are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, literally nothings, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, God doesn't want anyone to get the glory except for himself. And if we had nothing but, quote-unquote, elites on God's team, they would probably make all over each other and not really give God the glory. So God chooses mainly the nobodies, those the world has no regard for, who in effect know their nobodies and therefore are careful to give God the glory. Now notice it doesn't say not any wise, mighty, or noble, but not many Not many are called. Yes, there are a few, but not many. Mostly God uses just regular nobodies, right? The foolish, weak, base, despised, nothings. Hey, welcome to the family. (laughs) But if you were a pious Jew in Jesus' time, you would never have thought about selecting a dirty, rotten, scoundrel tax collector like Matthew to be an insider on Jesus' team. Nope, 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 not, nope, not on our team. Sorry. Just would never have entered the mind of a, of a pious Jew. But again, God's ways are not our ways. They're always better. They're always better. And know what Jesus said to Matthew. He simply said, follow me. This is the stuff of true conversion. This is the fruit of true conversion. Now, we're not saved by following. That would be a work salvation. We're not saved by following. We're saved by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if it's the right kind of faith, it will follow. True faith follows. And that's in keeping with what Jesus says as well. My sheep hear my voice. They respond in faith. They hear the voice of Christ through the gospel. And I know them, and they follow me. You see, the following is the fruit. And Christ says, it's to these people. And I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Who is it that has eternal life? What characterizes these people? Well, they hear the voice of Christ, and they follow. That's indicative of true saving faith. And Jesus makes it all about him. Follow me. He didn't say, you know, I've got a 50-point... A doctoral statement, I want you to look at this. And, and not that that's, it is important. Sound doctrine, you know, I'm a stickler for that. that. That is very important. But Jesus makes it all about him here. Follow me. It's all about me. It's so what are you going to do with me? That becomes the issue. And that's always the issue. And sound doctrine is all about who Jesus is. And it's it's all about Christ's teaching. And all about him. Saving faith is about allegiance to allegiance to Christ's person. And those who truly recognize Jesus as Lord, follow him. They follow him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you really believe on him as Lord, you're going to follow him. Now imagine if Matthew had said, uh, let me think about it. This is kind of abrupt. You know, I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> let me think about it, and, and I will get back with you. How do you, how do you suppose that would have gone? Jesus would have said, well, you know, I'm just the Lord, Uh, you you know, give it some serious thought. No, Uh, we would have a completely different story in the Gospels. What makes Matthew's story important is his response. He followed, he responded. That's a lordship response. It's the fruit of true faith. If you truly believe on Jesus as Savior and Lord, you want to obey him. By the way, it's why people get baptized. Because Christ says to do so. You know, it's not really just a suggestion. Uh, He says, if you're going to believe on me, I want you to testify to that in baptism. That's really what it is. It's an outward testimony that I'm identifying with Christ. He died for me. He was buried for me. He rose for me. And so we do so. Christ said, go and make disciples, followers, baptizing them. Uh, what's the first indication that you're a true follower? Well, you do what he says and not openly identifying with him. Just like Matthew, when Jesus says, follow me, true faith responds in following. Again, following is the fruit of true faith. Now, none of us follow perfectly, but we do follow uh, you know, we start as babes in Christ. Uh, we, we have to learn to uh, crawl. We learn to walk. We learn to run. It's a process of, of growth. We grow in grace. We grow in consistency. We often falter, but we still continue on as we are being perfected uh, by Christ. James says we all stumble in many ways, and we do. Uh, There's a lot of stumbling on the course, and yet by the grace of God, as children of God, he continues to work in our lives to bring us along as as he builds, builds us into the people he wants us to be. Matthew is an example of what Christ came to do. He came to call sinners to repentance, and what does that look like? True repentance is seen in a person becoming a follower of Christ. That's what it looks like. Verse 10, Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Matthew jumps right to the point here, while the other two synoptics, uh, Mark and Luke, give a little more background detail. But we see here that this was a dinner held in the house of Matthew. And I'm assuming he probably had a pretty nice house, being a tax collector, right? Probably a pretty big house, probably a pretty nice house. And evidently the purpose here of Matthew having this dinner in Jesus' honor was really to introduce Jesus to his old friends and associates. That's probably why they're all gathered here. Why else are we having this large dinner with all these sinners and tax collectors? It seems that he wanted them to know Jesus too. Note the cross-reference here in Luke 5.29 Then Levi gave him a great feast. So so this is in Jesus' honor. He gave gave him Jesus. He's giving Jesus a great feast. This is all about Jesus again. He's the center. In his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. You know what? Matthew's wanting to make the the most out of his testimony. I mean, he's probably got a one-shot deal here. And all, all, all the people he had known in the business, they're all showing up. And they're bringing some of their friends, you know, their sinners, their sinner friends, the tax collectors and the sinners. They're all showing up. Uh, there was a great number of them, it says. A large gathering who came in. And what were they doing? They, they sat down with Jesus and his disciples. Now, wouldn't it have been fun uh, to have been there and just kind of listened in on the interaction between all, this, this group, uh, Jesus, his disciples, and this huge group of sinners and tax collectors? What did they talk about, do you suppose? The weather? (laughs) The food? What Jesus had been doing? Probably all the above, right? I mean, what do you talk about there? Things bounce from one thing to another to another? Now, sinners in this context would have been outcasts of every stripe who were either morally compromised or didn't closely follow the ceremonial codes of the Jews. I mean, the Jews considered sinners who are not strictly following uh, the ceremonial law. In the time of Jesus, when people dine like this, they typically would lie on mats on the floor and be propped up on one elbow while eating from a low table. Uh, perhaps something like this, you know, uh, that kind of gives us a general idea. Verse 11 continues, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? We got a question. And they're always hanging around, these Pharisees, on the periphery. Certainly by their own admission, they were not eating with this motley group of sinners. But they were close enough. They were kind of on the edge. "Eh, What's going on over there? Looks like a feast. Jesus is in there. Look at that tax collector. I recognize him. They were watching close enough to see what was happening. They dogged Jesus' footsteps. You follow the Pharisees. Everywhere Jesus is going, it didn't matter as he got popular. Wherever he went, they're there. They're spying on him, they're trying to find something by which they might accuse him in their efforts to bring him down. Note, they didn't have the boldness here to directly ask Jesus, so they approached his disciples with this question, which was really more of an accusation than a legitimate question. Now, it was inconceivable to a pious Pharisee uh, that a true prophet would eat like this with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, that's, that's like going to a bar. You know how terrible that is. Right? I mean, really? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> Funny about that. I mean, a bar and grill is okay.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, my. They were having a problem. Uh, they considered this defiling and serious compromise. And so, in effect, they charged Jesus with guilt by association. You see, having a meal with someone denoted fellowship. So here in their minds, Jesus is having fellowship with these sinners. By the way, the word Pharisee means separated one. I mean, these were the separatists who sought to separate themselves from from any and everything that had any connotation of ceremonial defilement. It was all about you know what you can do, what you can 't do, what you can touch, and what you can't touch, and all that kind of stuff. but this emphasis on extreme externalism and kind of sometimes the fundamentalists have fallen into this, which I'm kind of poking fun at earlier, uh, extreme externalism, you know back in the day when I was young, you know like you, your hair could not touch your ear. I mean, <laughs> Sinful there 's a verse, right? Uh, where anyway, on and on, extreme externalism it led to hypocritical self righteousness. you know, I am very righteous because of what i do i 'm not not because of what Jesus does for me, but because of what i do that 's the problem with the Pharisees in Luke eighteen Jesus spoke. A parable that contrasted a self-righteous Pharisee with that of a humble, broken tax collector saying everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. By the way, Jesus was far harder on these religious hypocrites than he ever was on the pagans, than he ever was on the Roman leaders as wicked as they were. He spent most of it. When you look at Jesus, when he was hard on somebody, it was, he was hardest on these religious leaders who were hypocrites. Uh, John MacArthur says this, and this is true. The Pharisees had devised a slick disguise, concealing their self-righteousness and hypocrisy under a veneer of religious zeal. They were experts at this kind of thing. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that, Jesus over here is what's going on. Uh, he heard that, and he said to them, "Those that are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick." Well, you can see the profound wisdom coming through here. Note they were questioning Christ's disciples, but Jesus overheard them and interjected this: "Those who are sick need a doctor. In this case, a spiritual doctor who can heal them spiritually." Now, Jesus is the great physician. Yes, indeed, Jesus healed physically, but we saw last time in the example of the paralytic that Jesus put the emphasis on forgiveness, that is, spiritual healing, first and foremost. This is the greatest concern. Jesus is here speaking ironically because he definitely did not see the Pharisees as spiritually healthy. He did not remember what he said back in chapter five, verse twenty. He says, "I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Whatever they got it 's not enough it 's not going to get you to the kingdom. They have an external outward hypocritical righteousness, all about the outward code, the ceremonial uh, cleansing and all of that. He says that that won 't get you into the kingdom." Now, Jesus didn't come to heal the self-righteous, the self-proclaimed healthy, but rather the humbled sick who admit they need help because tax collectors and sinners were more ready to acknowledge their need for a Savior. Jesus could heal them as they would come to repentance. We have an example, as I mentioned earlier, in Luke 18. It says, Jesus gives this parable. And he gives this parable, it says in the previous verse, uh, verse 9, in regards to those who consider themselves righteous. In other words, the Pharisees, so that religious category of people. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And really that's what self-righteous people do. <clears throat> they kind of pray with themselves. You know? It's all about self. Uh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I mean, I am the subject of my prayer here. Uh, I thank you I'm not like other people. You know, those wicked extortioners, unjust adulterers, even as this tax collector, you know, this this low life over here. I, I, I thank you, God, that I'm so great. I'm not like that person. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm a giver. Aren't I good? I'm a really good giver. And the tax collector Standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He humbled himself. He admitted he was a sinner, calling on God to be merciful to him. The Pharisees thought themselves to be spiritually well. Because of their strict conformity to the ceremonial law. Therefore, they did not see their own sinfulness. And this is where Matthew 5, 3 comes in. Where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the poor in spirit are the exact opposite of the self-righteous. The poor in spirit know they are spiritually bankrupt, and they can't heal themselves. They acknowledge their need and they look to Christ for spiritual healing. There is no salvation for the self-righteous. You've got to admit, I'm bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God. Only the humbled who recognize their need of Christ are the poor in spirit. Verse 13, Jesus says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Repentance. Now, this phrase, go and learn what this means, really serves as a rebuke to those who consider themselves experts in the Old Testament. You understand, these people were the the elite uh, Bible scholars. And this serves as a rebuke for not knowing what they should have known. And he quotes here from Hosea 6, verse 6 in the Old Testament, which reads, For I desire mercy, the Hebrew uh, mercy here is hesed, hesed, and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So again, that word mercy here in Hosea six six is that rich Hebrew word hesed. I think the the new king or the, not the new king the, the King James uh, translators wrestled with how to translate this word. They they, they came up with loving kindness, uh, but actually they came up they had like fourteen different ways they were looking at trying to define this. So really rich word. And it's often translated as loyal love, steadfast love, or covenant-keeping faithfulness. It's that idea. I mean, God, God in his loving kindness, he's very faithful. He can be counted on. He's very loyal. It's, it's that idea. And then the verse says, The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. That's a continuation of the thought in Hosea 6.6. The key thing in context is that God really wanted them to know Him. And thereby to reflect His heart. In Hosea, the Jews, you see, were facing serious disciplinary judgment because of their sin. That's the whole context of Hosea. So... As you would study Hosea 6, you would find that they were reasoning that they could just get right with God by bringing lots of sacrifices and all will be well. I mean, isn't that what God wants? Old Testament, let's just bring more sacrifices. We'll get back on track and and everything will be cool. But what they didn't understand is that God was more interested in their loyal love than he was in their religious sacrifices. God wanted their hearts, not merely religious rituals. Jesus summarized the entire law as loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself in Matthew 22. To really live out Hesed, loyal love, looks like this. Loving God and loving others. God wanted their loyal love that not only properly honors God, but also faithfully cares about others. For the religious legalists, it's all about rituals and jumping through hoops. Okay, I'm doing that, doing that, doing that, doing that. It's easy to fall into this, by the way. But what God is really looking for is those who know his heart and therefore care about people. Don't say you love God and you don't give a rip about people. I mean, you don't love God. Do you even know God? The Pharisees cared all about their legalism and their ceremonies instead of people. That was their problem. That's why Jesus had such a beef with them. They're these big religious leaders out here, supposedly, and they didn't care about people. They didn't know a thing about Hesed, the compassion that cares about people. Thus, they completely missed the point of Hosea 6 6. Jesus here shows that the priority is the spirit of God's moral law over and above the ceremonial law. God wants people to know Him and His Hesed, loyal love. And when they do, that is reflected in their love for others. Notice a couple of other places in the Old Testament. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What, What does God want? To do justly. To love mercy. That's the Hebrew word hesed. And to walk humbly with your God. This is what God's wanting. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But he who glories glory in this. That he understands and knows me. That's the thing that matters. That I am the Lord exercising loving kindness. Ah, there's the word hesed. I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. God's people are to be godlike in how they live out their lives. And that includes this whole idea of loving kindness, mercy, hesed. What I hear Jesus saying is that God doesn't care how religious you are, how many rituals you perform, how many regulations you follow. If you don't care about people, you're completely missing what it means to truly know God. For God, it's all about people, lost people who need saving. The Pharisees, they were all concerned about their religious rituals. They weren't concerned about the spiritual well-being of the people. Jesus says, I'm concerned about the spiritual well-being of the people. I was reminded of of this hesed approach versus the harsh legalist approach when I read John MacArthur's booklet titled "What Uh, What the Bible Says About Homosexuality. And the very first lines of the book read like this. What does God think about homosexuals? Scripture is clear. He loves them. I didn't expect the book to start that way. That's true, right? It is God's love for sinners that prove the only means for their salvation. You know, we need to keep track of that. God loves sinners. Uh, And, you know, there's, there's no holier than thou here. We're all, we're all in that category and would still be in that category, except for the grace of God. Now, by the grace of God, we've been transferred over to a new category called saints, saints. holy ones. Boy, I'll tell you, only grace can cross that bridge from sinner to saint. And even as saints, we still got a sin nature that we struggle with. God's unfailing love, Hesed, cares about the spiritual needs of people. You have the heart of God, you care about sinners. You know those wicked people you can't stand? (laughs) You're concerned about their spiritual well being. And one reason God's left us here on planet Earth is to reach out to them. Christ came to call sinners to repentance, that's what we're doing. And that's why Jesus went on to say, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is what real spiritual faithfulness looks like. It is faithfully concerned about what concerns the heart of God. Now, there is irony in what Jesus is saying. When he says, I did not come to call the righteous, there's irony because, in fact, there are none righteous. No, not one, as seen in Romans 3.10. Jesus, in an ironic sense, is saying, You Pharisees, who claim to be righteous, cannot be helped because I came to call sinners to repentance. You're righteous in your own minds. Therefore, I can't help you. You see, the Pharisees were not really righteous, as already noted in Matthew 5.20, but they were self-righteous. They were self-righteous. They thought they were righteous on their own merits. And therefore, they don't need a physician. They don't need a savior. Such people don't need help. Well, they do, but they don't recognize it. And therefore, Jesus can't help these people. The only people Jesus can help are sinners. Isn't that interesting? It's the only ones he can help sinners. And I've met a few people, not many, most people will admit they're sinners. But I have met a few. I remember talking to this little, dear, old, sweet little old lady. I was going on and on about, you know, we need a Savior because we're sinners. And she said to me, just kind of interrupted me, and says, "Uh, I don't think I'm a sinner. Oh, my. Could have said, well, Jesus isn't for you then. If one is to be saved, it starts by recognizing I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. Christ came to save sinners. What did Paul say in 1 Timothy 1.15? This is a faithful saying. Drive a stake down here. Worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Praise the Lord. I'm a sinner. Now a saint. I'm a saved sinner. If a person won't admit they're a sinner, then Christ can't save them. The first requirement to be saved is to acknowledge that you are a sinner. Romans 5.8, we know this memory verse, right? But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came to save sinners. Christ came to call sinners to repentance. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. You see, Christ didn't die for the saints. You know, in a roundabout way, yeah, you can get there theologically. But but the point here of the verse is, while we were still sinners, he died for sinners. John Bunyan. I saw that I needed a perfect righteousness to present me without fault before God. And this righteousness was nowhere to be found but in the person of Jesus Christ. Indeed. You can't find it in yourself. The Bible talks about what we call imputed righteousness. What the Bible calls imputed righteousness. Which means righteousness that is imputed or put to our account. I'm I'm bankrupt. I don't have any righteousness. So I need, how do I get right? How do I get righteousness? Well, the Bible is very clear. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's Jesus that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is grace. Christ gets all of our sin on the cross, and when we accept him, we get all of his righteousness put to our account. Imputed righteousness. That's a grace deal. I'm never going to get over that. For all eternity, I, you know, I, one day <laughs> I was talking to a relative, you know I have relatives, and I was talking to this relative and and they kind of they're not a believer and kind of likes to needle me about certain weaknesses. And he was saying, yeah, i bet you did this. I don't know if he was talking about me I speeding. I don't know what it was. There was some little thing we got in conversation. He was kind of like needling me. And I said, you know, I'm on the grace plan. End of conversation. <laughs> didn't, want to, didn't want to talk about that anymore. It's a grace deal. Christ took all of our sin. We get all of his righteousness. But how do we get this righteousness? Well, the Bible is clear. I love Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3, 8 and 9. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. All of his merits, all of his efforts, I count them all loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish, more literally dung, You know, they kind of wanted to be a little bit sensitive in their translation here. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ until you come to see all of these merits that I supposedly thought I had. They're all nothing. In fact, if I trust it, it'll damn me. That's why he calls it dumb. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness. I don't have any righteousness of my own. I'm bankrupt before God, which is from the law you know, trying to keep all these rules like the Pharisees are doing. But that which is through faith in Christ, this is how you receive it. That which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Note something very important here, however, in the text. Christ didn't hang out with sinners to partake of their sin, but to reach out to them and offer healing. Not to condone their sin, but to call them to repentance. That's a whole different thing than carousing with them in their sin. People say, well, Jesus is a friend of sinners, like he's carrying on in their sin. Uh, That's to miss the point completely. Those in the front row can appreciate this. (laughs) Yes, Jesus hung out with prostitutes, drunkards, and outcasts. Here's the thing, though. By the time Jesus was finished with these people, they weren't prostitutes or drunkards or outcasts anymore. Jesus came to transform people, not indulge them. Christianity is about surrender, not comfort. Uh, we are to align ourselves to his standard, not the other way around. So th- that's an important qualifier there. You know what Peter says. Peter says this, We have spent enough of our past lifetime, this was B.C., right? Our before Christ days. We spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, And here's how we used to live. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them. We don't don't run with them anymore. And Jesus wasn't running with them back here. Don't say he was. You're missing the point. In the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And by the way, we should note in context here that this was on Matthew's turf, right? Right? This was in Matthew's house. Uh, It was not the sinner's turf. It wasn't a bash somewhere. Uh, This was not a carousing context, but a home context where the focus could truly be on Jesus. After all, this is a party in Jesus' honor. He's the centerpiece here. And as a footnote, observe that the older manuscripts here in Matthew 9, 13 don't use uh, the words uh, call sinners they don't use the words to repentance here. It just stops after I came to call sinners. However, it's a moot point because the parallel passage in Luke 5.32 does have it. Note Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The call of Jesus is really the invitation of Jesus. He invites people to come to him in repentance. That's how, that's how you come. That's the call. It's a call to Repentance. And this is what mercy looks like. It invites people to repentance out of love and concern for their souls. And that's what a lot of people want. You know, we want, we want to somehow get people in without repentance. And some people have really dissected it. Well, no, it's by faith. It's not by repentance. Yeah, it's by the right kind of faith uh, involving the element of repentance in the mix. It's a change of mind kind of faith. The Pharisees insist that sinners become righteous to gain acceptance. Jesus insists that they be accepted as sinners, albeit repentant sinners. I like uh, Sinclair Ferguson here. He says, It is misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. Rather, he accepts us despite the way we are. He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sake. Nor does he mean to leave us the way he found us, but to transform us into the likeness of his Son. Yeah, there's the, rest, there's the rest of the thought right there. Now, we often say uh, you, have to get them, you have to get them lost before you can get them saved. That's really what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, to appreciate the good news, people first have to know the bad news. In order to have a Savior, you first have to realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Romans is the most systematic presentation of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. The first theme that Paul develops at length is that all people are sinners, as seen in Romans 1, 2, and 3. And he shows that pagans are sinners. He shows that moralists are sinners. And he shows that religionists are sinners. And it builds to this climactic point. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exception. And note the very standard is what? God's glory. So, say, well, I'm living up to the glory of God's standard. Really now? Are you as perfect as God in thought, word, and deed all the time, everywhere? Uh, No. It's true. All have sinned and come short of this glory of God's standard. We're all spiritually sick in need of healing. We're all sinners in need of repentance. And Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. The self-proclaimed self-righteous don't need Jesus, or so they think. Jesus is the great physician who heals the spiritually sick. But the medicine he uses, so to speak, is repentance. Repentance. The way the sick get healed is through repentance. That's what he's saying. Now, this word repentance literally means to change your mind. Metanoia, uh, the Greek word, it means uh, to change your mind. And it's a change of mind about sin and about Jesus. You see, in repentance, one admits they are a a sinner. A sin, sick, sinner who can't heal themselves. And therefore, they need Jesus, the great physician, to heal them. In repentance, we we change our mind about Jesus as Savior. We need Him. It's the only way. We change our mind about Jesus as Lord. We change our mind from rebellion to submission, recognizing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Repentance is a complete change of mind. It results in a changed life. Repentance is an essential element of true saving faith. And it's only a change of mind kind of faith that will get you into the kingdom. There's a true story here. It kind of illustrates this. Uh, In one of the Napoleon Wars, Lord Nelson defeated the French Navy. And the defeated admiral brought his flagship along Nelson's vessel and went on board to make his surrender. He approached Nelson smiling with his sword swinging at his side. He held out his hand to the victor. Nelson made no response to this gesture, but quietly said, your sword first, sir. <laughs> Laying down the sword was a visible token of surrender, and that's the spirit of true repentance. To change a mind, I have a whole different perspective toward Jesus as Lord and Savior than I did before. George Matheson wrote, Make me a captive lord, and I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer be. Verse 14. The uh, narrative continues. Then the disciples of John came to him. We got more questions. Why are you eating with these uh, sinners? And now a question. Uh, Verse 14. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often but your disciples do not fast. That's a good question. That's a good question. And you realize according to Mark chapter 2, verse 18, at this very time, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Well, they look over here and they say, Jesus and his disciples feasting at Matthew's house. It didn't seem right. It didn't seem right. Hey, we're over here. We're all serious about God. We're fasting. How is it you guys over there, you know, kind of frivolous, living off the lamb? How's that? No thought for fasting. You guys, it seems to me, we're the serious ones over here. We're fasting. You're not. Uh, how, and they were smart enough just to put it in a question form. <laughs> now, it's important to note that John the Baptist had a sort of an austere type of ministry, as he called the people to Repentance. I mean, that was his whole ministry. And he sort of had an ascetic lifestyle, living in the wilderness, eating his main course of locusts, with the dessert being wild honey. A little commentary there. So the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples both put an emphasis on regular fasting. Now, we need to step back for just a moment and look at the place of fasting as ordained by God in the Old Testament. The idea of fasting in the Old Testament was to humble yourself before God and to focus on Him. It made God the priority, even above eating. Fasting signified setting aside self-orientation and focusing solely on God. And it often signified contrition for sin and getting right with God. Now, the only fast required under the law of Moses was a fast for the annual Day of Atonement. That's it. Fasting on this day portrayed brokenness over sin. The sacrifices and rituals that took place on the day of atonement were temporary pictures that ultimately looked forward to the permanent atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Now, in addition to this, the nation of Israel fasted in times of national calamity. Only later, in connection with the Babylonian captivity, and after, did Israel add special fast days, fasting days, to their religious calendar. It didn't happen until during the time of the Babylonian captivity and after. Then pious Jews began to practice fasting twice a week, on Monday and Thursday, fast days. This was evidently one of those days. So fasting in general is the idea of intensively focusing on God in a singular way. It has the idea of humbling yourself in brokenness before God. Ed Glasscock says this, Fasting is not commanded in the New Testament, neither is it a measure of spirituality, but the practice is assumed and recognized as beneficial. It is a private matter and has a purpose beyond mere physical discipline to focus one's attention upon a task, need, personal relationship with God, even to the exclusion of concern for what one will eat. An observation, by the way. People tend to gravitate towards legalism. I just got this bent. I, I kind of think it's easier. You know, it's easier just to have a list and say, well, I got to kind of, uh, this is a, a relationship-based course with the Holy Spirit and and, and love principles that are to gov my, govern my life. It, it, it's easy to, here's the list. Get a haircut regularly. It's easy. <laughs> so we have this bent that kind of tends to want to look to... Uh, to rituals and routines that we think somehow make us a little more spiritual, when in fact they don't. In the Didache, this is kind of humorous, in the Didache, an early uh, Christian teaching manual, early in the second century, uh, the Christians are exhorted in this manual, this Didache, quote, And you must not fast as the hypocrites do. That's the Jews. For they fast on Monday and Thursday." You must observe your fast on Wednesday and Friday. <laughs> so they end up doing the same thing, only on different days. Stick with the New Testament, the, the doctrine of the apostles. You'll be consistent with sound doctrine. But here was Jesus' response, Matthew nine fifteen, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. I want you to note something that's very important interpretively here. Uh, Here Jesus associated, in this context here, fasting with mourning. Portraying it as a symbol of sorrow. Now, understanding context that Jesus was on the scene as the king, presenting the kingdom as being at hand. Oh, let's fast, the kingdom's at hand. Now, it's true as far as repentance. You know, that kind of fit John the Baptist. But here his disciples are are believers. They're with him. In the Old Testament, the bridegroom metaphor is often used in reference to God and the kingdom is pictured as a coming messianic banquet. John the Baptist described himself as the friend of the bridegroom in John 3, 29. Thus, Christ being the Messiah and presenting the dawning of the Messianic age was no time for fasting. Rather, it was a time of celebration. The king is here, presenting the kingdom, on the condition of repentance, of course. Christ is the Messianic bridegroom, and a wedding is no place for fasting. Right? When's the last time you went to a wedding and you fasted? You feast when you go to weddings. It's a time for feasting and celebration. The problem was that these people didn't properly understand who Jesus was as the Messianic bridegroom. They were completely out of sync with God's program and what God was doing. Hence, Israel ended up rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, and the kingdom was put on hold. And Jesus alludes to this rejection, saying, "...but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them." And then they will fast. This taking away is not simply departure, but rather portrays a violent taking away as in reference to his crucifixion. And this certainly would be a time of fasting and sorrow. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus said this to his disciples, Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament. They're going to mourn, all right. But the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And get this, and your joy no one will take from you. Certainly in the crucifixion, there was sorrow for the disciples in keeping with the spirit of fasting. But the resurrection turned their sorrow into joy. As we study the whole counsel of God, we find there are special occasions where fasting is appropriate in the church age, for sure. Study the book of Acts. However, the dominant characteristic for Christians is now to be joy and not sorrow. In Nehemiah's time, the people were told, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Philippians 4.4. The Christian life is described overall as a, you ready for this? A feast, not a fast. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 7, and 8. Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. Applying an Old Testament principle, To Christian living. It's a feast. Not with old leaven. Keep it in the right way, in a holy way. Uh, Not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, immediately following the Passover day was the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. The picture is this. We're saved by the blood of the Lamb, which Passover typifies and Christ fulfills. We're saved by the blood of the Lamb, and now we should live holy lives that are not corrupted by sin. Passover corresponds to the type, in type, to the sacrifice of Christ. The Feast of Unleavened Bread corresponds to holy living that follows, having applied the Passover. But the point is this. The Christian experience is an ongoing feast, not a perpetual fast. Yes, we may occasionally give ourselves over to a time of fasting and prayer, as Paul observes in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, but the overall emphasis is that we are keeping a feast. Again, Ed Glasscock summarizes well, today the church is not to be fasting in grief, but living in the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy, Uh, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, victoriously awaiting reunion with the Lord. Fasting can still serve the purpose of focusing and spiritual refreshing. But for the church, it is not a sign of sorrow. I was visiting with a brother uh, just recently who's going through some things. and, And so I asked him, you know, sometimes it's good to come back to basic things. I asked him, who is Jesus to you? And he responded, oh, he's everything to me. Indeed, that's the right answer. As true believers, He is our Lord. Follow Him. He is our Savior, the healer of repentant sinners. He's our joy, the kingdom hope of all who know Him. So I ask you, who's Jesus to you? What is the point of the text we studied this morning? Matthew, conversion, follow Him. Came to Save sinners, call sinners, those that are repentant. Who is Jesus to you? This is the all-important issue in time and for all eternity. And so I ask you again, who is Jesus to you? Really, before God, who is he to you? Let's stand and have our concluding song. You so much for Jesus! What a glorious life, a glorious ministry, glorious truth brought forward by the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're all sinners; all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. We all need the Doctor, the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ, who heals spiritually all those who repent. And turn to Him in saving faith. Have a, have a change of mind. A life-changing kind of faith. And Lord, if anyone's listening that has not come to Jesus in that way. Has not counted everything lost. For the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, as Paul says. I pray that even now they would do that. Lord Jesus, as we read the rest of the story, we find that you went to the cross. This was the payment. You paid it all. And we owe it all to you. And then, Lord, as we truly respond in faith, we hear your voice and we follow you, just like Matthew did. We believe on you as Savior, as risen Lord, and that changes our lives. Lord, have your way in each one of our lives. May we sincerely examine ourselves, as the Bible says to do. Uh, Who really is Jesus to me? Is he truly the Savior? The great physician. Have I been to Jesus for the healing power? Lord, again, we thank you that it's all grace. Nothing we can do. All what Jesus has done. It's all grace. By grace are we saved through faith. Not of ourselves. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. None of us can brag. All glory to you. Lord, have your way in every heart and every life and uh, dismiss us now with your blessing and continue to use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.